back to the Did They Do It podcast. I am your host, McKinley Daw, and as always, I hope you're all having a fantastic week. Um, what did I do this week? Oh, I finally turned 18, um, so that's kind of cool. I had a really good birthday weekend. Um, I went and spent a weekend with some friends at a cabin. It was lots of fun. We just kind of hung out. It was... Went to the play mill and just a bunch of other stuff, but it was a really good time. Um, other than that, I haven't really been up to anything new. Oh, um, in other news, um, I'm going to be starting a website soon for the podcast. Um, I've been working on it for like a month or so. It's definitely a work in progress. I'm trying to figure everything out. Um, just so like everyone listening can have a place to go look at all the information and pictures and stuff like that since a lot of people don't have Instagram which I get it so I'm working on that so that all of that will be accessible to hopefully everyone um I'm not sure when it'll be done but hopefully it'll be done soon um I just want it to be like perfect and yeah so I'm working on it I will keep you guys updated on that and I do have the book recommendations the true crime book recommendations episode recorded um so I kind of forgot about it if I'm being honest so that will be released soon I promise okay so today we're going to be talking about the Antoine Douglas case so it takes place in Chicago Illinois on October 6 1993 so at about 3 30 in the morning a 40-year-old man named Vernon Meters was waiting at a bus stop in Chicago, Illinois. While he was waiting for the bus in the wee hours of the morning, a car pulled up on the road and the driver turned the car off. The driver was Antoine Douglas, who was 16 years old at the time, and he asked Vernon where he could get a jump start, which to me doesn't really make sense, right? Because he just pulled up and at least... To my knowledge, turned the car off. He wasn't, it wasn't like he pulled up and the car broke down. He turned it off. So why would he need a jump start if he just pulled up? Um, and why, he's 16. I mean, it's 1993. Um, in Idaho, you can get your license at 15. Right? I think I got my license at 15. So maybe 16 isn't weird. I don't. I have no idea. I don't, it doesn't really matter. But anyways, Vernon told Antoine he should just, like, just leave the car at this 24-7 gas station across the street from the bus stop where Vernon was standing. So Antoine did what he was told. He walked across the street to the gas station, and as he was walking to the gas station, another car pulled in at the same time. So, according to Vernon, the passenger in the front seat began asking Antoine if he was a member of the Disciples Street Gang. Antoine told the men in the car that he was actually a vice lord, which is the rival gang, I guess, of the Disciples Street Gang. So, immediately, the passengers of the car got out and started shooting and killed Antoine. So, Chicago is considered the most gang-occupied city in the United States. So stuff like asking 
who is a member of what gang maybe isn't such a weird thing because gangs tend to have like territories that you don't go into right like if you're a part of a certain gang you don't go into your rival gang's territory um i'm not obviously i don't know how that really works because i'm live in idaho and i'm not a part of a gang but obviously like that is in the most gang occupied city in the u.s uh, stuff, gang-related crimes are, and violence is going to happen. Um, the, this doesn't justify anything that happened to Antoine or to anyone else. So Vernon said that he dove to the ground as soon as the shooting began. He said he heard 20 or so shots that were fired at Antoine, and then he heard a voice say something about, like, hey, there's a witness. Like, this guy just saw us kill this kid. And then Vernon was shot in the arm. So I, the story kind of goes, I bet. they He didn't see them shoot him in the arm. But after you hear the game, you're like, oh, crap. This guy saw us kill this kid. Like, we got to kill him, too, so he doesn't tell anyone. He got shot by the gang, essentially, is what I'm saying. So Vernon did the smart thing, and he played dead until he was sure that the car was gone. So that, because if he's alive and, like, struggling, they're going to be like, crap, he's not dead. Shoot him again. Then he's for sure dead. So the fact that he played dead until he was sure that the car was gone was a smart move. So both Vernon and Antoine were both taken to the hospital. Unfortunately, Antoine died. Um... I read in one of my sources that it was around 5.30 in the morning. Uh, the shooting took place around 3.30. So I'm going to assume that he was uh, and like taken to the hospital first and then declared dead at the hospital. So Vernon was interviewed by police while he was at the hospital. And Vernon said that there were three men in the car. And that the front seat passenger who was doing the talking and most of the shooting was a Hispanic male. Vernon was sent home from the hospital that same night. And while at home, he was visited by detectives Ronaldo Guevara and Ernest Halverson and Sergeant Edward Mingy. Vernon was showed a photographic lineup that contained 21 photos of Hispanic gang members in the area, including Jose Cruz, but Vernon couldn't identify anyone. No one looked like the guy that he remembered seeing at the scene, which if this, is, this is happening right almost immediately after the shooting. That's when his memory would be most fresh. So the fact that right after he's being shown a 21 photo lineup and he can't identify anyone is pretty significant right like if I saw someone do something illegal and then the around the same time police are showing me a photo lineup I feel like I'd pretty I'd be able to definitively choose a person if that person was on that lineup but he couldn't identify anyone okay <laughs> keep that in mind so the next morning, the Chicago Tribune published a short article about the shooting, and the article mentioned Vernon by name and gave his address, which is so messed up. Like, he is a witness. Why the heck did you flip in 
give out his address, especially when it comes to gang stuff, because the gang members that shot Antoine could have been like, crap, that guy's still alive, let's go back to his house and kill him. Like, what? Because obviously the people who killed him had every intention to kill Vernon too, because he witnessed what they did. And he literally lives in within walking distance of where the shooting occurred. So the people who killed Antoine could easily find Vernon and kill him too. So I'll actually read you the article. It's pretty short. But uh, just so you can kind of like get a sense of like they literally said like exactly where he lived. So it says a 16 year old boy was killed and a man wounded in a shooting at near a west side gasoline station early Wednesday. Antoine Douglas, 16, whose address was not known to police, and Vernon Metters, who 40, of the 1300 block of North Kedzie Avenue, were shot about 3.30 a.m. near Orlando's Shell Gas Station, 3142 West North Avenue, said Grand Central Area Violent Crimes Sergeant Frank Cavatelli. Douglas was pronounced dead at 5.30 a.m. Wednesday by the Cook County Medical Examiner's offices. Metters was treated and released from St. Elizabeth's Hospital for a gunshot wound to the arm, according to a hospital spokesman. Like, okay, let's go back on this. They literally said pretty much exactly where he lived, his name, like, everything. That's, that sucks. Everyone knows where he lives. Gosh, that's ridiculous. Anyways, so on October 8th, so they're actually moving very quick, like very quick in this investigation. This shooting happened on October 6th and October 8th, and they're getting right on it, right? So a detective visited Vernon again. This time, Vernon said that he could identify the shooter, but he wanted to be reassured that he and his family would be protected before he made the identification. So essentially, once that news article came out with his address in it he was pretty pissed and like oh my gosh my freaking family's in danger I'm in danger because this stupid news outlet the Chicago Tribune put my address out there and I'm a freaking witness to this gang related crime I'd be I'd be pretty scared too so the police agreed to relocate his family and put them into a witness protection program. Vernon was shown a lineup of Latin Kings Street Range members, and this is when Jose Cruz was identified as the gunman who was in the front passenger seat. He was also shown the first lineup again that they ever showed him, like when he was in the hospital that same day, and he identified Jose Cruz a second time. Jose Cruz was arrested on October 9th, 1993, just three days after the shooting, and he was charged with first-degree murder as well as attempted murder. So Jose obviously denied having any involvement with the murder. Um, he did admit that he was involved with a different shooting in which he had been arrested for, but he was out on bond at the time. So this second shooting is like completely unrelated to the one that we're talking about. Um, but it's just kind of filler important information. 
So Jose's alibi was basically that he got home at 1230 a.m. and went right to bed. But he was woken up at 5 a.m. by his aunt who was leaving on a trip to Puerto Rico. So basically for from the hours of 1230 a.m. to 5 a.m., he's unaccounted for, at least in my opinion, because if when you say I went to right to bed and I slept, no one's, well, at least not to my knowledge, no one saw him sleeping. So how can he really be accounted for? Like, not to play devil's advocate, but how can he be really accounted for from those hours? He really can't. So that's pretty open. I bet cops were like, okay, whatever. So once Jose was arrested, he was placed into a live lineup and Vernon identified him again. So this is the third time he's been identified. In January of 1996, Jose went to trial. And the amount of evidence that the prosecution had was essentially minuscule. Like, there was no physical or forensic evidence that tied him to this crime. And Vernon didn't even admit to it. He didn't even falsely confess or anything. He didn't confess at all. So... They really don't have anything except for these three identifications, right? And a lot of other stuff that we will discuss later. But Vernon did testify at trial and once again identified Jose as the gunman, saying that's the guy I saw shoot that kid. So the defense focused their case on the fact that in the initial photo lineup, first photo lineup they ever showed Vernon that Vernon did not identify Jose and he couldn't identify him because he wasn't the gunman is basically what they're saying like if you couldn't identify him the first time then how are you identifying him the other times is uh, and I get it that that seems pretty solid to me so despite the defense's best efforts on January 3rd 1996 the jury convicted Jose of first-degree murder and attempted murder, and he was sentenced to 90 years in prison. That was to be served consecutively with the 15-year-long term he received in the unrelated shooting case. So he's essentially serving 105 years in prison because he is guilty for this whatever unrelated shooting thing. He gets 18 years for that. He gets 90 years for this. He has to serve them basically like so he'll serve like the 15 years first and then after that he has 90 more years left if that makes any sense. So Jose's defense obviously started to file motions and appeal the conviction. So they filed a motion to vacate the conviction completely but the Illinois Appellate Court for the first district upheld the conviction in October of 1998. So years and years and years went by without any movement in the case whatsoever. And Jose honestly just began to expect that he might just have to live out the rest of his natural life in prison. Because ain't no way he's surviving and then 105 years in prison. There's no way. But there is light at the end of the tunnel. In 2018, an attorney at the Center on Wrongful Convictions at the Blum Legal Clinic 
named Gregory Swigert filed another post-conviction petition to vacate the conviction. That's whole, that's kind of a tongue twister, post-conviction petition to vacate the conviction. But, anyways, the petition essentially stated that the detectives who were assigned to the case identified two other witnesses who said that the gunman was black and not Hispanic, like Vernon had said. One of the witnesses was a man named Pedro, who was the attendant working at the gas station the night of the shooting. When he was initially interviewed by police, he told them that he saw the shooter and that the shooter was a black man. But a few days later, cops come back to the gas station. They have a nice written up statement in English and had Pedro sign it. Now, keep in mind, Pedro doesn't speak, understand, or even read English. So he had no idea what this statement said. He kind of just entrusted cops to tell him the truth, right? Because they gave it to him. They're like, sign this. I'm sure he thought it said the person I saw was black and not Hispanic. Like, oh, this other guy is saying. But it's ridiculous. So the statement that police had Pedro sign basically said the shooter was, quote, all of complected Hispanic or light-skinned black, close quote. But when Pedro was re-interviewed as part of the Center on Wrongful Wrongful Convictions Investigation, he said that that is not at all what he said and that the words were put in his mouth by police, essentially. The petition also said that Jose's original defense never contacted the two witnesses to possibly testify on his behalf. So, kind of for us, no, like, what's ineffective assistance of counsel? Like, his lawyers didn't do everything that they could have. Which, that would have been a good thing, I think, to have. Because that makes their theory look a little bit stronger, right? So, it also cited a number of cases where defendants had been granted new trials based on evidence that the two detectives who worked on Jose's case had forced defendants to falsely confess or forced witnesses to falsely testify. And so I'm going to read about those cases that were cited in the uh, petition straight from the University of Michigan Law School National Registry of Exonerations, which is my favorite source ever. Okay, so it's about one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs. So it says, in 2004, Juan Johnson, whose 30-year prison sentence for a murder conviction had been vacated in 2002, was acquitted at a retrial. A federal jury later awarded Johnson $21 million in damages from the city based on evidence that the original three eyewitnesses recanted their testimony and revealed that they were coerced by Guevara to identify Johnson. Seven years later, Jacques Rivera was exonerated of a murder. He later filed a federal civil rights lawsuit accusing Guevara and other officers of burying evidence and pressuring the witnesses to falsely identify him as the triggerman. In 2018, a jury awarded Rivera $17.175 million. In 2016, the murder convictions of Jose Montanez and Armando Serrano were vacated 
and the charges were dismissed. Both had been convicted on false testimony that had been coerced by Guevara. In April 2017, Roberto Almodovar and William Negron were exonerated after evidence showed that Guevara had improperly influenced eyewitnesses to identify them as the shooter and drive in a drive-by shooting that killed two people and wounded a third. In November 2017, Jose Masonet became the seventh person to become exonerated based on misconduct by Guevara. Masonet, who was serving a sentence of life in prison without parole, falsely confessed after a 17-hour interrogation punctuated by beatings and torture by Guevara. In December 2017, Gabriel Solache and Arturo de Leon Reyes, who claimed that Guevara had beaten them into confessing to a murder they didn't commit, had their murder convictions vacated and the charges dismissed. Now, this flippin' Guevara's detective guy is costing the city lots and lots of money. Like, two of these people won tons, millions of dollars. All because of his misconduct. And he was a detective on this case. So, I'm sure there's some sketchy stuff going on. I'm sure there was eyewitness coercing and crap like that. But, yeah. Clearly this guy, this Guevara's guy needs to be fired. So, super recently, on July 12th, 2022... The Cook County State Attorney's Office Conviction Integrity Unit announced that it would no longer contest Jose's conviction and his convictions were vacated and the charges were dismissed. And he was released this, that same day after 26 years in prison. So I really, this is what sucks about some of the older cases. I scoured the internet for any information on Antoine Douglas literally searched high and low but there's essentially nothing about him anywhere um he was just a 16 year old boy who was honestly in the wrong place at the wrong time and they have not found who actually shot Antoine since Jose literally just got released from prison less than a month ago but I hope that they figure it out and find whatever gang members actually shot him it's a really sad story, and I know that it was like 20, almost like 30 years ago that this happened, but I hope they find justice for him, but that is the Antoine Douglas case, and I hope you all enjoyed that episode. If you did, make sure to leave us a five-star review, um, write something nice if you want. That would be awesome. It really helps me out. And if you want to follow us on Instagram and TikTok, it is at But Did They Do It Pod for both. Um, I just kind of post on our Instagram like pictures that are associated with each case. And then on TikTok, I just post funny videos and stuff. But make sure you stay tuned because next week we'll be coming with a, another great episode for you guys. Bye, guys.